Welcome to the Insurance Brokers Podcast with your host, Sarah Myerskoff. This business podcast is for ambitious brokers determined to grow their business. Our guests are highly experienced industry experts and innovators. This is the place to leverage their success, learn how to break through barriers to growth, and discover a community of support and ideas whilst growing your business. Welcome to this episode of the Insurance Brokers Podcast. On this episode, we're really excited to be talking to Ashwin Mystery. Ashwin, as many of you will know, is the Executive Chairman of Brokeability. Ashwin has over 40 years' experience in the general insurance and broking market, having started his career at 17 before becoming a director at Brett and Randall in 1983. Ashwin helped establish Brokeability in 2006, and it is now a major independent group in the UK. In 2000, Ashwin was awarded an OBE for his contribution to careers in education, and he is a strong supporter of lifelong learning and education for all. Welcome, Ashwin. Good afternoon, Ashwin. Thank you ever so much for coming on the Insurance Brokers Podcast. I'm really grateful to have you here. Such a big name in the industry is exciting and phenomenal for all those people listening. So thank you. No problems. Ashwin, can we start with, would you just give us an overview of you and your phenomenal background and experience in the insurance market? I'm sure most people know, but just really to hone in how amazing this is. Okay, so my career starts back in 1978. I finished my A-levels. Unfortunately, my father died in 76. I had no option but to either start work and or go to university. So I chose work for personal reasons. And in 1978, I applied for 96 jobs, ended up with nine. I was supposed to join Lloyds Bank in July 78. And instead of turning left, I turned right, ended up at Guardian Royal Exchange. At 10 o'clock, as a young 18-year-old, I realized I was in the wrong building. I didn't have the nerve to go and tell somebody I'd already accepted nine jobs, of which Lloyds Bank was one. But I ended up at Guardian Royal Exchange. So my history started on the 17th of July, 1978. And the rest, as they say, is history. Amazing. I bet you've learned some amazing lessons along the way. I just cannot tell you how lucky we are. Well, first of all, we're the only sector that knows when the customer is going to walk through the door and what they're going to buy, how they're going to pay, and whether they're a good customer or not. Sarah, I'm sure you go shopping, whether you go to Next or Marks and Spencers or John Lewis, they've got absolutely no idea when you're going to go in, which store you're going to go in, how much you're going to spend, what you're going to buy, what color outfit you're going to choose, and how you're going to pay. Uh, We have the benefit of knowing exactly when our customers are going to walk through the door. It's called a renewal date. And how awful is that? And, And I've got 364 days to impress you. And I just think it's a phenomenal sector that we're in. So I can go on and on about what lessons I've learned, but I just think we're in such a unique place. I cannot think of any other sector or industry that has that level of um, certainty of when your customer is going to walk through the door. And I think we should be taking advantage of that and building some positive relationships. And I think it's up to brokers in, in general uh, as to how they communicate and to create relationships. And it's it's a phenomenal opportunity, really. So, yeah, I can keep going on, but I think it's it's a unique sector that we're in. And we've had so many challenges from, obviously, 9-11, 
which was a, a big flagship for the insurance industry. We've had continuous floods. Uh, we've had the terrorism issues. We've had, um, obviously, uh, now uh, we've got the pandemic issue. And it's a moment for the industry to, I suppose, demonstrate its value in so many ways. So we're, we're, we're here now. And I think there's been a lot of challenge with regards to policy cover, policy triggers. And this is where the broker and insurer can work in harmony to work out the best solution for the end customer. Hopefully we can talk about that as we progress this conversation. Absolutely. And I think you've said both words there. Challenge and opportunity are are different sides of the same coin. And the industry has obviously had a lot of challenges over the years. You've just highlighted quite a few of them. What do you think the impact of the particular challenge we're in at the moment, the pandemic off the back of the last few years of the industry, what do you think the the impact of that's going to be globally and particularly in the market over the next three to five years? Yeah, good question. I think, um, first of all, I I really don't have a crystal ball as to what the impact is going to be. All I do know is that our reputation has been challenged. I do know there's been a lot of commentators talking about how insurance hasn't triggered uh, when they all expected policies to trigger. I think this is a, a global event of unprecedented proportion. The insurance industry had not predicted or underwritten for a pandemic. Some of the policies that are currently triggering are because of what we regard as either sloppy underwriting or, I suppose, boilerplate clauses or just failure for insurers to update their wordings. The more specific covers that have been applied, like Wimbledon has been raised as a good example, is where the customer wanted specific pandemic cover. And I've been work. I've been working in the insurance industry for forty years plus, and in broking for the 37, 38 years. And not and, and in, in that time, I've never had a client to say, "I've got an, a blank checkbook. Tell me what I need to be covered, and I'll tell me and I'll pay for everything that you recommend." I've never had that conversation. So we have, uh, I suppose, progressed through our careers talking about the known risks. And then the unknown risks that have occurred over the last 10 years, like um, uh, terrorism has has, has raised its head, cyber, directors and officers liability, employers practice liability. So those events have been foreseen, have been underwritten, and uh, insurance is available for those sorts of issues. But pandemic has never been freely available, and we are now in uncharted territory. I've been quoted, and, and I'm happy to share again, I think globally, governments around the world have spent in excess of eight to nine trillion dollars. The entirety of the insurance sector is about 2.2 trillion globally. And we would have been wiped out had we paid every every single claim that people could have potentially claimed for. So this is uncharted territory. Policy triggers are incidental and accidental, not necessarily thought through. And as I say, one of the outcomes of this is insurers will look at very closely how they distribute their products how they distribute capacity, how they distribute uh, policy wordings and endorsements, and it will have a lasting effect. I'm sure you'll have seen most insurance companies' balance sheets have been severely uh, challenged and and diminished. And remember, most people that you're talking to today and all the guys who are going to listen in on this conversation will have pensions. And most people's pension funds will have been impacted because this is just Uh, such a global event. It's impacted share prices globally and people's pensions are also at risk. I think the other thing that came to mind the other day, 
a couple of weeks ago, more than 50% of all employees in this country are currently paid for by the state, whether you're in the NHS or the public sector and or claiming now uh, employment benefits or pension credits. That is a staggering number. So the ship, as the Chancellor has said, has got to be righted. And I don't know how he's going to do it and when he's going to do it. But we're in uncharted territory. The government's going to have to borrow money that we haven't seen. It's been eye-watering. So I think the lasting impact is global, not just the insurance sector, of which we are important constituents. So I think there will be many, many things that will change uh, and far too numerous to, to mention now. But even working habits... Are people going to be wanting to work from offices anymore? How are they going to travel? I think we've all seen the benefit of the last 10 weeks of lockdown where the atmosphere is, is, is breathable. You can now see the blue skies of Delhi. There's fish in Venice and uh, the ozone layer in China has severely dropped. So, you know, I think it'll be a massive wake up call. How long that feel good factor lasts is another thing altogether. But I think as we are at the moment, there'll be some fundamental changes in every sphere of life. What do you think um, of the French court ruling on the Paris restaurants? Have you seen it in the newspapers in the, either today or yesterday? No, I, I think there's a couple of issues there, Sarah. One, we've had, the, obviously, the FCA has intervened a few weeks ago. They're going to take a number of policies for review and a number of wordings for review. It'll be interesting to see which policies they are taking uh, forward. It'll be interesting to understand what the structure of the uh, inquiry is going to lead to. Most insurers have... Um, have got legal opinion on their policy wording and triggers. So I'm not sure what the outcome may be at the end of the day. Is there going to be a challenge on that? So I think this morning's revelation about the French authorities is uh, interesting. I, As I understand it from what I've read, they're sort of asking insurers to pay for two months uh, for the COVID cover, not necessarily beyond that. How much they're asking to pay, how it's going to be calculated is yet to be determined. So I think it's an interesting uh, development. So, I mean, we're, we're, we're sort of keeping an eye on the American markets as well, where a number of states are pushing insurers to retrospectively provide cover. So we'll see what, what, what comes over from the US. But it's all, also, this is very fresh. I'd like to see the detail before commenting any further. But it is an interesting move. And will that perhaps force the insurer's hand in this country. And again, what's that going to do to the balance sheet? What's that going to do to legal opinion? What that's, what's, what that's going to do to the FCA inquiry? I have no idea at the moment, but you know what we do know is there will be an outcome over the next few weeks, maybe summer, as to the outcome of the FCA inquiry and how that's going to manifest itself with insurers are going to be called in on. I believe the ABI have also issued a note this morning asking for the pandemic re, uh, sorry, rather the pool re uh, fund to be utilised. How is that going to be used? Which sectors are they going to apply? Is it going to be selective? So I think that also has challenges. So there's a lot in the air. And I think at the moment, we're all sort of groping for the right answer. But there are options. So this is really interesting what the French have done. And whether that cascades to the UK or not, I'm not sure. But at the moment, we are still part in the transition period of the EU. So whether that cascades to this country as well. I think what you say is really interesting, because I think there are many people out there outside of the industry that don't appreciate the impact that forcing the insurer's hand will have 
on the global economy. And I think, so I think what you're saying is really interesting. One of the things that I know brokerability do or protect is that tripartite relationship between insurers and clients. And I can hear some of that come from what you're saying, a real genuine understanding of, of both sides of the coins. Talk to me about that, how, how you guys, how that's fundamental to what you do within brokerability. So I, th- I think just one step back on this, Sarah. Breakability was set up uh, 14 years ago. And, and really the, the essence of setting up Breakability was to retain independent broking. There was, was the first round of consolidation about 14 years ago. The independent broker was being squeezed out, either in terms of uh, capacity, in terms of underwriting space, in terms of deals. And we just felt that somebody had to speak up for the smaller broker. And Brokeability was was uh, incepted by a very small company called Bretton Randall. And we were very small. And the focus of attention was going towards the large consolidators. So we just put our hand up and said, hello, can, we, can you notice us? And, and that was the real trigger. And then that's carried on successfully over the last, last 14 years. And, and the one thing we, we've done from day one, Sarah, is, is our core manifesto of sharing the pain and sharing the gain. So we've worked in genuine partnership with three uh, interest groups. One is the capacity providers, which is all the insurers you can name. The secondly is working from a broker perspective as to our legal and fiduciary responsibilities. But then also being fair to the end customer. What does the customer deserve? Do they deserve an equity in terms of the products that we're we're distributing? Do they have a say in the makeup of the products, how we service them? So it's been a very strong tripartite relationship, and we've never abused any of them. It's really understanding what the smallest broker in the equation wants compared to the large nationals, understanding where the insurers are coming from and understanding their models a little bit, and really trying to relay that to the end customer. And it's breakability. We've never ventured into uh, MGAs. That's been a very specific decision. We believe that the insurers should provide capacity and pay claims, and would be the broker should be looking at product delivery and, and client experience. So we've maintained that discipline all the way through, and uh, long, long may that continue. So we do understand the insurer's position, and I think every year we go out of our way to explain to our clients what is going on globally, what is going on in terms of sec- sector specifics, like flood was a big issue, like theft of catalytic converters, like employment liability. So we, we've been very focused in keeping our customers engaged with what is going on and where their premium goes. Motor fleet, for example, we demonstrate how their, their motor fleet is calculated. We demonstrate what our fee structure is so the client knows exactly what they're buying and what they're expected to do in, in, in return for that premium. And insurance, to be honest, Sarah, is, is a pound swapping game in many ways. It's the losses of the few uh, that is paid for by the many. And at the moment uh, where, we, where we're facing this calamity of pandemic, it's the losses of the many that might be paid for by the few. So there are long-term implications. And we do try very hard to educate both parties. We explain to insurers what client anxieties are. And conversely, we try and explain to clients as well how the insurance industry works and how they can mitigate and manage their risks. Yeah, I can see that through the ethos of brokerability and what I know about you guys. Obviously, your position is quite unique. Brokerability is quite unique. You might be, you know, a network in some respects, but in other respects, you're not. How do you define brokerability and what you are? What's I think, I think the best way to describe it is it's like a private member's golf club. Uh, <laughs> so we are... 
We are very selective in the brokers that we do invite to join the club. There are some home rules, ground rules. The, uh, the first one is you must want to remain independent. That has to be the basic ethos. The second one is you must become chartered, uh, which we think is uh, aligned with the conversations you've had with the CII. And the third one is, is really about what, what I explained earlier, sharing the pain and sharing the gain and doing the right thing. The day any broker in my group decides to uh, thump the table and say, you know, we're brokerability, we, we demand this. I think that's the day we will come to terms and say, you know, you may as well leave the group. We, we, we're not going to be demanding uh, nor to children. We've never stretched the elastic band on, on relationships. And we've done what is equitable for the markets. We're commenting on a whole range of things. And we have done since we started this group. And, and we'd like to be a voice for the independent broker. And as I say, we do muscle in. We did get involved in the Insurance Act with McTavish, with, with David Herzl, because I think brokers did have an important part to play in the Insurance Act as well, and how we now communicate what the end policyholders' uh, requirements are in presenting their risk to the markets. So I think in many ways we are we're going to be vocal. Uh, we will continue to do that. We have an opinion on a number of things. And I think as long as we're doing the right thing in terms of uh, broker remuneration, in terms of product wording, in terms of distribution, I think there's a, there's a place for staunch independent brokers and also to provide the service customers need throughout the country. I've been tracking insurance, as you say, for the last uh, 42 years. And I think it was a sad state when the banks and building societies started to withdraw from uh, high street advice. Uh, and in many ways, if the broken fraternity is squeezed further, there could be this dereliction of duty, there could be this void left for policyholders who actually need advice. And, and that is getting tougher and tougher to sustain with all the issues that come with compliance and in terms of what we have to do as brokers to make sure our policyholders understand what they're buying, where their money goes and how they can control expenditure, but also control risk. You talked a little bit about it there, how um, sort of ethical practice is fundamental to your key values. What's your view on the consolidator model? You mentioned it earlier, and I'll leave it there. What's your view on that? I, I think it's it's just evolution, uh, Sarah, because consolidation isn't just taking place in insurance. It's taking place in banks. It's taking place in the motor industry. It's taking place in retail. I think there is a place for consolidators. There are some very good consolidators out there. There are some consolidators or just perhaps uh, in the land grab and, and roll it and flip it uh, regime. I think there is a place. I think the number of independent brokers has substantially declined over the last uh, 20 years or so, that decline will continue. We, we don't see any, any hold up in that space. So I think consolidators do have a, a place. I think um, if they can serve the public, they can serve their customers in terms of what they want, then I think it's a welcome move. I do challenge the consolidators do, do want to come in, I suppose, uh, rip the hearts out of the business, push insurers for higher commissions, and then flip it to the next uh, VC. That will be a concern to us. So at the end of the day, it's evolution. We are not alone in this. Consolidation is, is everywhere. Uh, look at the banking sector, look at the retail sector, look at the motor industry. It's continued. And I think this uh, this this pandemic uh, will see more consolidation, perhaps in in other in other spheres. It could be in the aero industry, where some some industries are are struggling. So it's it's just the way of the world. But ultimately, uh, if it serves the customers' end, then I'm very happy about it. Where they do, I suppose, uh, pillage the end customer, then I would have no rejection. 
One of the things that I've noticed working in the industry is, as a general rule, it's a relatively aging population at the top. So that, I think, gives rise to a lot of the exit strategies that involves consolidation. What do you say, A, about that, but B, how do we counterbalance that? I think there will be opportunities that come out of this pandemic. I've had a conversation with someone this afternoon that's thinking about going it alone, startup, and various things that Boston Tullis do to support that. So I'd really like your thoughts on that. Yeah, I I think every crisis creates an opportunity. I think you're right. Um, I would perhaps say some of us dinosaurs need to get out of the way uh, (laughs) to let let the younger breed in. I think businesses will evolve. I think new businesses will set up. I think pre-crisis, you saw a lot of fintech companies setting up. They were homing in on customer behavior. And if nothing else, this crisis has shown that even uh, the Silverhead Brigade is going to buy online. And if that sets another trend as to the customer experience, I think we've got to treat customers with respect. They know what they're buying. They know what value they get from the price they pay. I think you'll see new business models evolving as a result of this. I'll see you, I think there'll be a new generation of entrepreneurs in the insurance space that will provide some healthy solutions. We can talk about the the rise of what I call the shared economy. You know, do you need your car 24-7? Do you need your house? So we've seen things like Airbnb. You've seen, um, uh, obviously, Uber. And I think that will now cascade into many other activities. Online shopping for retail is a, is a big change that's going to come. Utilization of office space is going to be a big change. I think there are phenomenal opportunities for the entrepreneurial mind, as long as people are out there, uh, to create ideas of how they best engage with the end customer. And if the end customer buys into that, happy days. I think you've just hit the nail on the head there. The entrepreneurial mind I think this pandemic is going to push people off the precipice and the entrepreneurial mind will develop in that space because my experience so far is that there's a very particular mindset in the industry and it's it's more corporate than entrepreneurial. So that small movability that the entrepreneurial mind allows, I think, is, is coming through. And I've had some really interesting conversations over the last 10 weeks of lockdown around that. So I think it's really interesting. What would you say to the startup now? If I'm somebody looking to start up a brokerage now in this pandemic, what's your advice to me? What do you think are the key most important things I should be looking at? Oh, I, I think the uh, the uh, the first point of any any scientific theory, as you must remember from from school days, is try and disprove your theory. And what I mean by that is, if you've got an idea, do as much as you can to work out why it won't work. Because once you've established all the reasons why it won't work and you've got solutions that overcome that, then I think you've got a proposition that you can talk to a lot of angel investors. You've got companies like us who are very happy to listen to good ideas. Uh, It has to be backed up with very good detailed consideration, market thoughts. But I do now see lots of entrepreneurials who are being forced as a result of the lockdown, those have been furloughed, who've got time to study, time to understand. And I think new business models will evolve. I think the high street will change considerably because consumers won't just want to go into town to buy domestic goods. They'll want entertainment. They'll want to be kept occupied. They want community. I think there are phenomenal opportunities that I can can reel off a number of things. We as our business, our, our, our own training business, we've evolved. 
I'm old-fashioned in the sense that uh, broking was the realm of the Silverhead Brigade. Things have changed significantly since then. Online activity has boosted. And I've got to, I've got to make a confession. 12 months ago, I wasn't on Twitter. I wasn't on LinkedIn. And I now wake up every morning and close off every night looking at Twitter and LinkedIn. I update my profile, update commentary. Uh, it's stuff that I wouldn't have done before 12 months ago. So all of a sudden, I, I'm now not fearing the beast. I'm embracing it. And in many ways, a lot of people have been forced down the online routes to think about things differently creates an opportunity and it's a question of what people are going to do to take advantage of that because I think the realm of corporate monopoly is dead. I think smaller ventures will have a great opportunity to come through with some innovation and some ideas and I think some of us have got to be careful. Uh, we've taken a lot of relationships and, and, and positions for granted. And to be honest, Sarah, nobody owes me a living. I've got to work very hard every single day to make sure I remain uh, relevant and uh, reasonable access to my clients because they now have options and they can move. They can move anytime they want. And I've got to continuously prove that um, staying with my business is of value, not just price related. You've just touched on two points that we work on uh, quite substantially as well, training and marketing. So just talking about the training aspect, I know you encourage and it's a prerequisite that your brokers work towards chartered status, which I think is amazing. What's your viewpoint on training for uh, client-facing staff, question one, but also on owners of small brokers? Do you think there ought to be some kind of business development training for people running small businesses? Okay, interesting question. So uh, I think back in 2014, if I remember, I launched, I was president of the CII uh, National, and I launched the Government Growth Action Plan with Matt Hancock, who's now the uh, Health Secretary. He was then the Education Secretary. And we launched the uh, Insurance Growth Action Plan, and that was to encourage apprentices within businesses. So we've embraced that. Uh, We were one of the uh, original, uh, I suppose, pilots, and we've taken on apprentices for the last seven years now. So that's really worked worked in our favour. I think the answer lies in financial services, Sarah, because financial services have gone through things that I think are coming on the GI side, where Unless you're qualified, you shouldn't be speaking to policyholders. So we've mandated, again, all our frontline troops, including claims, to have qualifications. And I think unless you're qualified, you shouldn't really be picking up the phone because every opportunity is to impart knowledge. And also you can cut costs by, I suppose, instead of asking 10 questions, ask three, get the right answers and progress the uh, solution for the end customer. So training is absolutely fundamental. I think companies that don't invest in training, well, as they say, try the alternative if you don't. And then your second question is, is uh, what, what training is available? Should organizations make themselves available? I think there is an awful lot that, that is available. But ultimately, it does require the individual to get off their backside and do their own learning. I learn a lot myself. Um, I, I make it a mission every week to stay ahead of my CPD. I read a hell of a lot. I, I stay engaged with, with what is going on. And I don't think there is any substitute for lifelong learning. It's something that I, I champion in my life. In fact, um, in 19... Uh, I'm going to try and get the dates right now. In 1997... 
I was invited by the then Education Secretary, David Blunkett, to join the National Skills Task Force. And that was to look at the skills agenda for the UK PLC. And I was I was part of that that group. And in 2001, we, we launched the National Skills Agenda. And that was to upskill Britain, to make sure that people had the opportunity, because my personal belief is education is a universal currency. If you have something that people want, uh, you don't need to have anything else. You don't need gold. You need education. You can feed your family. And in many ways, lifelong learning has been very pivotal to, to my personal career. And I think there is an awful lot of support mechanisms out there. The CII is one. There's a lot of business support groups who are out there as well. And there's an awful lot of free training. But again, the individual has to make themselves available and be wanting to become a sponge and absorb what is going on. And if nothing else, these last 10 weeks, uh, when we are being required to, to confine ourselves, there's so much going on. I do hope people take an advantage of the time they've had to upskill, up maybe to learn different skills, because employees out there must also understand that employers are going to be demanding more. And rather than being in a silo, more can you offer the employer? And we've also looked at employment contracts, Sarah, because we think an employment contract is both ways. You should be offering your skills to the employer and the employer should be valuing what skills you're adding to that organization. And if you're one dimensional, then I'm sorry to say you've, you've limited your options. So I think it's uh, it's a phenomenal opportunity that's been provided to the individual. There's an awful lot of training out there. I get a gazillion emails every day updating me on, on what's going on in COVID-19. And I'm sure most brokers are as well. The question I have to ask is, are you, are you absorbing that, understanding it, applying that to your business and helping your clients understand what's going on? Because, again, broking is, is great. Uh, as I said to you, um, which sector can say, I'm going to be speaking to Sarah on the 26th of May? You know, it's absolutely determinable. And when I go and see a client, I'll spend the first half an hour talking about the wider economy and um, what's going on. So I would regard broking as business doctors. We, we have a, a wealth of information that we should be sharing, and that proves value. So to me, lifelong learning has got to be something that brokers invest in, individuals should be investing in. As I say, the world of work is going to change. It's a contribution that you're making to your employer, and that's got to be recognized. So please take advantage of all the training and ask the questions. Don't assume it's not available. Ask the questions. And on that note, if anybody listening wants to look at the Boston Tullis website, we've got a series of coming training over the next few weeks that cover both soft and technical skills, because I think there is, there's, a, there's a need for both, because I think it builds confidence. So, you know, we do offer training. Did you mention that you guys offer training or did I make that up? Yeah. So we have individual brokers provide their own, own sections mm-hmm. of training. We have our learning and development uh, units. We mandate all, all our guys to be undertaking continuous improvements. Mm-hmm. They have their personal development plans uh, signed yep. off every single year. So, for example, uh, uh, you know, my, my, my team would come to you, Sarah, saying, what is it you've achieved last 12 months? Where do you want to go? What can we do to assist in your skills? And can we enhance your, your learning? And I think if you came to me with a blank sheet of paper or two or three lines, I'd be very disappointed. We need you to challenge us. I'm prepared to invest in individuals. But of course, that's going to be done within working hours. But we'd like to see what you're prepared to do outside working hours. And that encourages me to invest in you. Again, something we're very proud of, investors in people. 
Most of our brokers are investors and people recognized as well. I think we're on silver in my trading business uh, with a view to go to gold. And I think that should, again, be recognized by employers and individuals because, again, invest in your own future. Pension age is going to be increasing. I think it's 68 now. I think with respect, looking at, uh, at yourself, Sarah, it might go up to 75 by the time you get to retirement age. I think, you know, you're, you're, you're long time gone and you can work for a very, very long time to look after yourself and your family. Why would you give that up? Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. Just on the last point that I wanted to touch on that you mentioned earlier, you mentioned LinkedIn, Twitter, social media. Obviously, marketing is far deeper than just the digital marketing, but my experience is it's not hugely embraced or understood. I don't mean understood in a patronizing way. I mean from a confidence perspective in the insurance world. One of the things that we do, which has been really, really well-received for the entrepreneurial-minded, is sort of development of niche marketing tools. So it might be a a survey tool that we develop for your particular niche that is a resource aid to them. It might be a podcast channel that we can set you up and source people for, etc. It might be digital marketing. It might just be as simple as, let's look at your top 20% of customers that are ideal customers and let's go and find some more. It might be as simple as that level focus, which isn't in my experience working in this industry, top of the mind to the industry. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, wow. So we, we, have our, our, we have our own digital marketing team started off with a couple of people. I think there's about 12 people there now just in my own training business. And I think uh, you're absolutely right. Marketing isn't just about um, promoting goods and, and services. To us, it's a question of sharing knowledge. We have over the last 10 weeks, we've kept our policyholders engaged. We've provided lots and lots of quality material on reinstating work, on the whole issue of COVID, on business resilience, on risk management. The amount of information we've imparted, I get regular updates on my online activity, and it's been staggering the number of hits we get, and people do value uh, knowledge and information. And also we include a, a shed load of practical tips. Uh, risk management, for example, is now uh, sought after by most businesses. I think the duty on employers, the bar on, on employers is going to be raised. We produced a risk uh, assessment manual for uh, returning to work. That's still the checks and measures all businesses have to undertake. And it's been phenomenal. But also, Sarah, we've linked up with, I suppose, best way to describe it is um, associated firms that can provide advice on PPE equipment, on health and safety, on first aid at work, on return to work guidance. So we work with local authorities. So we're bringing in a lot of stakeholders. And that helps us not just raise the profile of our own company, but also brings in other participants that can help businesses get back. We provided tools uh, with regards to the plethora of government initiatives that are going on, because you do get the five o'clock debrief, you get lots of announcements. We try and decipher that. We, we direct policyholders to the government websites. We do, I suppose, provide a, a pre-see of what, it, what is going on. And that is really welcome. So, for example, shops are going back maybe on the 15th of June. We've already, my team are working on it today as to what, uh, what shops can do, what they should be doing, open spaces, um, uh, motor garages. So we're very much in tune with what's going on. And then the last bit is, of course, mental health well-being. Again, that's been a big issue we've identified with our own staff. And of course, it affects us, it affects our clients. So again, we've got a whole catalogue of 
good advice as to what employers should be doing. And all brokers that you're you're targeting today are employers. So what are they doing? And it, in many ways, knowledge shared is knowledge halved. And if you can just spread that out, I think it's a phenomenal tool. So marketing shouldn't just be limited to product development and product push. I think there's there's a lot of things you can do. And what we've gleaned from this exercise, we get closer to our clients because they become reliant on us. And do call us and say, by the way, really interested. Can you help me with this, that, and the other? Mm-hmm. And we direct clients to other companies that can help. It doesn't cost us anything, and why wouldn't we? So I think the whole world of marketing needs to be embraced. I agree. And just on your risk management there, one of the companies I work very closely with, they're a partner to Boston Tullis, and we work together, essentially, is a risk management company. And they offer an online DIY risk management portal, which can do business continuity planning, it can do health and safety risk assessment, it's got all of your HR, and they have just launched, and I think it's phenomenal, a mental health e-learning tool whereby you and your staff can go through and learn to recognise the signs of mental health, what you can do to support employees, and I think that's going to be absolutely key in the coming months in terms of going back to work, but also in terms of supporting people working from home and the isolation that that brings And I do, I I think it gives another opportunity, another touch point with your clients. And I know that this particular company worked with a lot of insurance brokers and white label that the product on. I just think it's a really powerful tool and it's a product in its own right, but it's also a marketing, it's a touch point, it's a added value. It's all of those wonderful things. So I think um, really important. I I think just just to echo that, I think uh, employment relationships are definitely going to be the first thing on most people's agenda, either going back to work, what measures you're going to undertake, and and then how you're going to be working with staff going forward. I don't, as, as I think we started this discussion a bit earlier, what's the world going to look like? What are the challenges? And I think engagement and relationship between employers and employees is definitely on the agenda. And if we're not embracing that already, I think it's it's a short-sighted view. It doesn't matter whether you've got two or three employees or you've got 120, 180 like we have. Ultimately, it's, it is about each individual needs to be recognized. You know, there's a lovely adage that says, you know, recognize me. Everyone wears this invisible sign. We've picked that up very, very quickly. You know, I, I made the assumption that everybody had a desk to work from, internet that was, you know, clicky, and uh, also, you know, office uh, a space within the home. I don't have young children uh, running around. And when I start to speak to a number of my guys, I suddenly realize they've got some genuine practical issues, which in a normal pre-COVID world hadn't even registered. It's a rude awakening for me because I've forgotten what it's like to have a three and a five-year-old running around, not letting you work, and they want to play in the sun. And you've got a day job to fulfill. So I've locked my office door because I've got three primary school age children and I cannot tell you how many podcasts, meetings, interviews have been interrupted because there's a lack of cheese in the house or there's a finger that's hurt or there's a requirement for attention because their mental health is taking a battering as well at the moment. And this balancing act is insane. Yeah, I, th- I think the I think every board member, and I, I've got uh, four other colleagues on the board. I think it's been a, I suppose, illuminating experience. This because we're talking to our individual staff, and everybody is having empathy and things that we never discussed in the boardroom are now being discussed. Which, um, you know, I, I'll tell you now, ten weeks on is staggering. Just interesting. Whilst we're on, um, we had a disaster recovery session as we're required to do by the FCA, and uh, this was done in January. 
and uh, my, my sort of risk team put us through this, this scrutiny. And they came up with a whole host of disaster arenas that we, we as a board had to work through. And we covered so much ground. The one thing, Sarah, we didn't discuss was pandemic. So despite them being creative and coming up with the worst scenarios, they never discussed pandemic. But what is interesting, we did discuss if you can't go back to the office, if there's been an explosion on the bottom of the road, or we don't have internet. And that was incredibly valuable as we put that into practice within literally 24 hours. So things like disaster and going back to your risk management, you know, all businesses will need to have business continuity and disaster recovery plans because I think this is a long way from over. Who knows? We might see phase two. We might see a resurgence in a different way. But businesses just need to plan and there is no substitute for planning. So as much advice as people can get. And it's interesting you say that because we're talking about businesses not brokers we're talking about businesses so all of those brokers that are the insurers for SMEs this is your opportunity to help with that to support them in developing their own business continuity plan management system and to really understand it because a lot of people don't and I think it's I think it's really important if you if you if you boil it down to when you think 99% of British businesses are less than 10 I mean, first of all, it's a staggering number. Mm -hmm. So you imagine being an owner of the business, you've got 10 people, and apart from your partner, you you might have a business partner, you might have a wife, husband that you might talk to, or a business partner. You know, it's a very lonely place to be in. And I think brokers who have this, this vast bank of customers they can draw on, I normally go and see, I, I still look after clients, by the way. My first question is, what keeps you awake at night? That should be the first question every broker should be asking all their policyholders. Every single renewal, what is keeping you awake at night? And in many ways, Sarah, if you start off with that, I then begin to understand what's worrying you. Not what's worrying me, but what's worrying you. And it's incredible because what could be worrying you, I've got solutions for, or somebody down the road or in the next county can help you. Well, why would I not say, well, Sarah, go and speak to Fred in Gloucestershire because they can help you with this because they've been through exactly what you've spoken about. Mm. And in many ways, you know, we are business doctors, we are marriage brokers, we can introduce people. It doesn't cost us anything. And if it helps you with your problem, I've added value without even talking about insurance. So I think the fundamental question when everybody goes back, what keeps you awake at night? And then you'll be amazed what, you know, because it could be a domestic issue. You know, it could be my supplier's gone bust. It could be, you know, I can't get through to my customer. It could be I'm so reliant on one supplier. If they have a fire, what am I going to do? What happens if the plane doesn't leave on time? What happens if my staff are stuck overseas? So if you want to understand risk, That is your first question. What keeps you awake at night? And I think that just creates because ultimately your policy holder, your client is just going to open up about what's on their mind, not what's on your mind. And me splurging about insurance and how great we are, just listen to your customer because that's where your solution and 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 your answers lie. I think that might be the title of this podcast, What Keeps You Awake at Night? I think that's an excellent one. On that note, Ashwin, that was phenomenal. Thank you very, very much for your time. No problems at all. Thank you.